I'm not really a expert, but it is an interesting question like, why do people smoke weed versus do cocaine or drink alcohol or drink coffee? What does weed potentially do for people compared to other things that they might want to do? Like, why do people do it? Well, you say that you're not an expert, but do you think you might have your 10,000 hours in terms of uh, being stoned? Have you, have you been stoned for cumulative <laughs> 10,000 hours? I think so. I probably did 10 years. It's only Every 416 day. days, so... That's only 416 days? That's but 10, 24 hours. hours out of the day. Okay, what about maybe two hours? Two hours a day for 10 years gets you right about to 10,000 hours, so I consider you an expert. I've put in my 10,000 hours, too. I clocked out after that, but some people don't reach the, the peak of using insanity that I did, and they're able to use it in a different way. Part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is be honest about marijuana, because there hasn't been a lot of honesty coming from either camp, either the pro-weed or the anti-weed, in terms of a nuanced look at the long-term effects also the potential benefits and the creative side of, of people that marijuana can bring out. Can marijuana make you more creative? In a perfect world, I might have continued to smoke in moderation, using it for short bursts of creative inspiration whenever I'd get into a rut. I remember that the first handful of times I got high, the experience was so powerful and the rush of energy and ideas so intense that I never really stopped chasing that feeling even way after marijuana stopped taking me to that seemingly magical place. When I first had the idea for this podcast, my old college friend Josh Weil said that he'd like to be interviewed. Josh knew me when I first started smoking, so I thought it would be fitting to see what he could remember about those halcyon days before smoking took its eventual toll on my creative powers. We go way back to freshman year of college. We were paired up in the dorms by chance, by the luck of the draw, and it was lucky that, that we were paired together because we both learned a lot from each other, I think, that first year. What, what are your memories of freshman year, Clark Kerr dorms at Cal, of getting high? It's going to sound funny, but I don't remember us smoking together that much. I remember me smoking with other friends. I remember you smoking with your other friends. And I guess we smoked together in college, but my memories of us Smoking is actually after college. Is that what you remember too? Or was I just too stoned and forgot all the times we smoked together? I, I think there's a little bit of that faded memory effect. One thing I do remember about freshman year at Cal was that while I had come in as a relative novice, I'd only gotten high a handful of times. Very quickly, I started to outpace my friends. It started off as something I only did in social situations. And then eventually I was looking to score on my own. Uh, wouldn't be for a few more years. That became part of my everyday habit. But there was one time in particular that was really memorable. The infamous Can the Dog Dig Dude session in your friend Jonathan's room. Without turning this into some sort of a glorification of marijuana, we put together a song that I think still holds up under scrutiny. I think the song still holds. You sent it to me the other day and I was like, that's a creative song. There is an element of free association that happens when people smoke weed. If we weren't smoking like that, it's hard to imagine that we would have created that song. There is some element of getting together with your friends, smoking weed and making things. It certainly was a catalyst, at least for us in that time. 
There's something that feels effortless about the free association. You're less inhibited like alcohol, but it's also different in the way that ideas that wouldn't normally be associated with each other come together. I won't call it visionary because I think they're silly songs and there's an absurd element to them and they don't necessarily make sense, but there's just enough of a kind of idea behind it. Can the dog dig dude or did the damn dog die when he tried to elude the simplest lie? By, by breaking out of sense making and the need to make sense, you can end up having this emotional resonance come out of it. I think it may give glimpses of that now i don't think it's the real thing because ultimately i think someone needs to have that consciousness within themselves and be able to be creative otherwise it's not so much them i think it's the drug talking when i was in maine a couple of years ago one of my friends was the music producer we were smoking a lot of weed and we made these rap songs and it certainly helped the, the creative mood. There was a certain very fun element about that. Undeniable, I think. Yeah, and, and you talk about the real thing. I think in some ways there's something of substance behind it. That word substance keeps coming up for me. Finding your substance. For a long time, marijuana was my substance. And we know now that yeah. we've got endogenous cannabinoids and a whole network of receptors that are specifically there for receiving the inputs from our own inner endogenous cannabinoids. That substance is there without the drug, and we can calibrate our system to be more or less sensitive to the substance. Being a person of creative substance does require getting out of that limited mode where you can only be creative when you're high. My brother-in-law shared a song by Macklemore talking about all the times when he was smoking all day and it seemed like he had these great ideas, but then whenever he came down, he just would sit back in front of a blank piece of paper. Some artists find that it makes them more creative, but maybe at the expense of their long-term output. But I think the pipe dream thing is real where things that you may think of when you're high that are like the greatest ideas later make me cringe he gets friends around smoking and they come up with these wild ideas and then if you wake up the next day in a more sober state of mind you may realize it's not actually achievable or even desired then and that's basically the working hypothesis for this show that we accumulate a store of ideas some of them good some of them bad i was in the habit of keeping these little notebooks when i was smoking and I still come back to them, actually, for inspiration from time to time. And some of them are garbage. But other ones, like I'll just pull up a random page. This says, Ferry Service with Flair. And it's got a little drawing of a sailboat, Golden Gate Bridge, and it's taking people around from different places on the bay. That's actually something that I do now for work. Just on Saturday, I was dropping people off in San Francisco. It's a charter with some flair. This was a vision that I had probably when I was high, and it took me five years to actually get there. But not all pipe dreams are necessarily invalid. It's just that at a certain point, we need to look up from our navels and actually start to put in the work. But I want to go back in time and, and reminisce a little bit more. Uh, yesterday was 420, and a friend sent me this picture of Memorial Glade, which was just packed with people yesterday. And there's a huge cloud of smoke coming up out of it. To me, it's sort of this metaphor for how legalization and the, the mainstreaming of marijuana culture has co-opted a lot of the original ideas and the ethos behind 
the Berkeley 1960s counterculture, where there was a rush of energy and enthusiasm, probably in part because of things like mind-altering substances, whether marijuana or other psychedelics, but it fizzled out. And now it's this very corporate, almost technocratically administered thing where people use these increasingly intricate technological devices to get high, like vaporizers and there's super advanced processes for extracting more and more THC from the plant. I can only imagine being a freshman now, the level of peer pressure. Oh, you weren't getting high on 420? The transgressive thing now or the subversive thing to the system is actually being sober and uh, paying attention rather than getting into this docile, domesticated state. Even if you make an argument that this is an organic plant and maybe it was even part of our evolution, today it's become something very different. Do you think you can have it both ways, though? Is it possible to use in a way for occasional inspiration, uh, relaxation? And have you ever been able to find that balance for an extended period of time? No, I, I don't think it's really possible from my own experience to be like, oh, I'm just going to smoke maybe on the weekends or every few weekends or once a month. And so I find myself in cycles of smoking and not smoking. And when I'm in the cycles of smoking, I'm usually actually wanting to be in the cycle of not smoking. And when I'm in the cycle of not smoking, I'm almost never wanting to be in the cycle of smoking. Some sort of temptation comes up, whether I'm hanging out with a friend and they've got a joint and I know smoking makes me feel good in certain ways, and so I'll take a few puffs in the joint, then it'll lead to, okay, maybe I'll just buy a joint. It may take me a week or a month. There's no real occasional once every while that seems to really work for people who actually really have enjoyed using the thing. Yeah, as Ken Casey of the Merry Pranksters would say, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. This book about cannabis use disorder, From Bud to Brain, a psychologist's perspective on marijuana, Tim and Cermak, reports that there are more regular users, which are people who smoke 20 or more days a month, than there are quote-unquote heavy users who smoke between 10 and 20 days a month. So it seems like you're either in the camp where it doesn't quite turn you on in the way that it does you and I, and in which case it's not going to draw you into the cycle, or you're on the bus and you're using most days, uh, maybe taking a break for, for some extenuating circumstance, or intentionally taking a break in order to rebuild your tolerance or try to quit altogether. When you get back on the bus, you're trying to get back off the bus, what do you find brings you back to a place where you can be sober? It's wanting to rest and recover because I find when I smoke, it dramatically affects my sleep. If I smoke anytime before going to bed and I'm not completely sober before going to bed, I don't get this cerebral spinal flow into my brain. I don't fully recover. The next day I wake up somewhat foggy, dreary, low energy. And then I usually smoke to get some sort of surge of energy back, bring me back to baseline. I've thrown out so much marijuana before, which is probably similar to a lot of people who have quit where... And if flush it down the out, toilet. Because <laughs> if you just throw toilet. it away, then you might fish it out. Yeah. One of the most common stories in, in Marijuana Anonymous is going and, and digging it out of the trash or, or kicking yourself after 
flushing it away and say, oh, why did I do that? And then you go right back and spend another $30. Totally. Josh makes the important point that it helps a lot to not have weed around as a temptation, what I've referred to as the near occasion of sin. Back in our day, the obstacles to getting weed were much higher, meaning it was easier to avoid the temptation. Today, you can just go to a dispensary, buy an eighth of an ounce, maybe even get a free joint for your loyalty, just as easily as you can go buy a pound of coffee beans and get a free cup from your favorite third wave cafe. Lately, I've been struggling with, with my uh, relationship to caffeine in this very conflicted way where I can't decide whether or not there might be some kind of a free lunch. You know, maybe there is some benefit from moderate cannabis usage for creativity. We know where it leads in the long run. And also, I know that if I start drinking, you know, two cups of coffee a day, then that's setting me up to feel groggy the next morning and need to start the cycle over again. But I still am not intellectually convinced when it comes to caffeine that it's not a net positive for me. When I'm drinking caffeine, I do think that I, I get more done. It's just like that poster, coffee, do more stupid stuff faster. What's the difference between a medicine and a poison? Is there a dose at which you can get the benefits with anything? Or should we just give up all drugs altogether? Good question. I find myself in similar positions with caffeine. And right now, cookies, that's probably one to two cookies a day. Not marijuana cookies. No, not marijuana cookies. You know, chocolate chip cookies, oatmeal raisin cookies. They're sweet. They're satisfying. I would like to be in a place where I'm not relying on drugs, sugar, caffeine, marijuana. I think those are all drugs that do different things. I'd like to have energy. And I think that comes from developing your body yourself from the inside to a point where you have the energy from the food you eat you have the satisfaction from the life you have and you're not needing these external stimulants to try and build that feeling within yourself you mentioned the cerebrospinal fluid earlier tell us about yeah. that uh, so when you sleep, the cerebrospinal fluid gets pumped up into your brain and that's like a defrag for your mind every night. It just washes through everything. I feel like when I'm high, there's some sort of blockage where I don't get that reset. I'll often wake up in the middle of the night with either a song in my head, I'll wake up still high, and I feel like it never gets to the point where like my brain gets washed over and the next day is fresh. So it just feels like a continuation of the day before. And I think that's what happens when you don't get that cerebral spinal fluid flow um, while you sleep. One theory of why there's an increased flow of cerebrospinal fluid to the brain during sleep is that neurons require less oxygen, so blood flow decreases and the fluid rushes in to maintain pressure. This watery liquid washes through the brain in pulsing rhythmic waves cleansing toxins and proteins that impair memory. A study on rats published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, found that administering THC decreased CSF flow, that's cerebrospinal fluid. This is, interestingly enough, the same mechanism that is thought to help glaucoma patients who use medical marijuana to decrease the pressure in their eyes, resulting from a buildup of aqueous humors. THC has also been shown to suppress REM sleep, and anecdotally, marijuana users notoriously can't remember their dreams. 
But the subjective experience isn't all Josh has to base his claim. I have a WHOOP fitness tracker. During the day, it measures heart rate, strain, and at night, it measures my sleep. The one key metric on that is heart rate variability, or HRV, which is the rhythm of your heart. So not necessarily your heart rate, but the rhythm of your heart. When I smoke marijuana, I look up the next day at my numbers, and my heart rate variability goes down when I smoke. You generally want a higher heart rate variability. If you have a very steady beat, that means you're not resting. Just based on the numbers alone, besides the feeling of fogginess and not feeling rested, when I wake up, my heart hasn't rested to the point where basically I can relax. So that's a big driver for me of not wanting to smoke because it's very visceral, the consequences. Our modern condition and the human condition is at a profound mismatch with our environment oftentimes. So we turn to things to try to get back into balance. Marijuana is a, a great way to feel temporarily at ease and, and in a state of homeostasis, even if it creates a longer term imbalance. Alcohol is the same way in terms of maybe makes us feel more at ease in social situations that are unusual and, and would have been foreign to our ancestors where we're interacting with strangers on a really regular basis. This is you know something that the paleo community has explored for a long time or evolutionary fitness, thinking about how the mismatch between our evolutionary environment and our modern world creates all these negative health consequences. And I think the addiction community needs to look at the same ideas when considering what drives people to use marijuana. You've got a lot of interesting ideas about health and I won't call it physical fitness because I try to get away from that, that word. We're both movement practitioners or somatic practitioners. You do work with resistance stretching that I'm going to give you the floor in a second to talk about. But uh, let's take a quick break, a little musical interlude here. And then when we come back, we'll get into the, the stretching. Does that sound good? That sounds great. All right. Can the dog dig, dude? Or did the damn dog die when he tried to elude the simplest lie? And I heard he hid when they hounded him. He was only a kid, but they tore him limb to limb. What do you know about the dog, dude? I'm getting sick. And where was the wolf, the wags wild wife, when he licked himself before? They took his life. Pampered pet pup. Sea dog. He finally grows up, but his mind turns to bog. His hound hits the hay. Twenty-one gone. A real dog's day. That uh, was the musical stylings of the. We had a name for our little band. I think it was called the Babe Ruth Project. Not sure where that came from, but uh, there was a certain depth. I, f I feel like the idea is they come rushing at you so fast that 
you know, you're not even sure what you're processing or what you're saying, but there's something in your subconscious. Maybe it's a certain genius that can come out without the inhibition of our normal reality. And I'm not entirely opposed to the idea of a sort of visionary experience or getting a window into these other realms. But I think you're right that, you know, ideally we would be able to, to access these realms naturally, or at least we wouldn't feel the need to come back to them every single day. You mentioned you're in the in-between state of on the bus, off the bus, you work in any kind of a program or what sort of routines are you putting into practice in your daily life to stave off the cravings? For myself, a big thing is the social situations I put myself in. So for me right now where I'm not buying weed or having in my house, well, the only other opportunities would be if I'm with other people that are smoking. And I have friends that smoke, and I know if I put myself in those social situations where they're going to smoke, well, that's going to lead me to wanting to join in smoking with them. And so there's a little bit of not putting myself in those social situations with my friends who I know would be smoking in those situations because I don't really have the willpower to not smoke while hanging out with people who are smoking. No one's forcing me to do it, but... I do find when I'm with people who I like, who are smoking, that's what I want to do. The easiest and fastest way to get back on the cycle of smoking is to literally hang out with people while they're smoking. What's your theory of what weed does for people that other things don't do? In traditional Chinese medicine, marijuana is associated with the liver meridian. They've identified the different meridians in the body, muscle group pathways, with organ connections. And this is a step beyond where Western people have taken it and even some in the East, but there is a psychological connection between these meridians and the different states of being, whether you're being analytical thinking or emotional or angry or upset. And the liver meridian is actually associated with frustration. So for myself, I can tell when I'm really frustrated that those are situations where I really want to smoke weed for frustration. Does that wow. make sense with your own experience? Yeah, no, it's like a light bulb just went off when you said that. And whether it's creative frustration or any kind of frustration with the modern world. Another really sneaky thing about marijuana is the, the way that it's so seductive is by making us feel fewer of the consequences of our frustration or, or of our, you know, there, there are different ways of dealing with the, the stupidity of the modern world, I would say. One is to work to simplify your life, break out of the paradigms that aren't serving you, and to not just take the, the easy road that's offered to you by consumerism and these sort of cheapened interactions. But it takes a, a little bit of faith and it takes uh, time to learn what alternatives to the status quo work. I'm not so familiar with Chinese medicine but you're saying that meridians are uh, muscle pathways that connect organs. So I study resistance flexibility under Bob Cooley, who, in my opinion, advanced Chinese medicine, yoga, flexibility, and strength training. Bob likes to tell a story many years ago when he gave his presentation to a Pacific Oriental College Chinese medicine group where he presented two new meridians and his theory of muscle group flexibility connections, the guy said, oh my God, this is a guy who rediscovered Chinese medicine. 
what Bob discovered is that there are 16 muscle group systems that you can physically train. And for reasons that are not well understood, when you upgrade the health of any of those 16 muscle groups, you get a specific upgrade in both organ function and also psychological function, which the Chinese know some about. So if I wanted to upgrade the health of my liver based on this theory, I would stretch them. This is a simplification, but I would train the muscle groups associated with the liver meridian. And it's not well understood the connection between the muscle groups and the organs, but we think it's there. We've experienced it, but it might be fascia lines. It might be hormones. It's probably some combination of both a physical thing, but also uh, a chemical thing in your body. Wikipedia makes it sound like traditional Chinese medicine and this associated concept of qi energy flowing through meridians is pseudoscience because it can't be seen under a microscope or dissected in a cadaver. But you could easily said the same thing about the endocannabinoid system before it was discovered. If the sum total of these complex interactions among our inner wiring systems can't be reduced to a scientific understanding, is there anything wrong with poking around, trying different stretches or compounds and seeing how they make you feel? Wikipedia also compares traditional Chinese medicine to the humoral theory of ancient Greece, with its emphasis on dynamic processes over material structure. Humorism, or humoralism, went out of style after the advent of germ theory, but many doctors and scientists are reassessing the idea that chemical systems regulate much of human behavior, including our immune responses. Remember how marijuana is supposed to treat glaucoma? It's through the reduction in pressure of what again? Oh yeah, aqueous humors. I'm not suggesting that we go back to diagnosing all diseases through the lens of the four vital humors that Hippocrates identified, that is, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. But there is definitely something to be said for focusing more on the body's functions and interconnected systems rather than just anatomical structures. What's an example, like one of the most dramatic changes that you've personally experienced stretching a particular muscle group and then having it affect either some component of your psychology or another organ system that you would think would be unrelated from a Western perspective? From the most damaged muscle group part of my body is actually the liver meridian, which is associated with marijuana. Now we're going beyond Chinese medicine to Bob's discoveries. The liver meridian group is an emotional aspect compared to being physical or analytical or spiritual. Being able to hang in social situations and feeling what other people's desires are and being able to act on those desires in a non-repressed and free way. It's also a way of being that people can find really good looking. Liver specifically is likable. I used to have like huge digestional issues, inability to process fats, which turns into flatulence, which is no fun. As I upgrade the health of my liver meridian, I don't just get digestion changes, but I also find myself in social situations, being able to enjoy myself more, being with my satisfaction, being with other people's satisfaction. And that's kind of a free and non-repressed way of being where I think what I was trying to do with the marijuana was trying to give me those feelings of freedom and non-repression and 
relaxation and a decrease in frustration. As I train that part of myself, I'm getting more and more of that naturally. And people are telling me, you look more handsome or you're different socially. And so I get perspective on myself. So it's not just myself looking in the mirror being like, oh, I look better. It actually is also a community and people around me telling me that I've changed, which is very helpful and validating and is encouraging to keep working on those muscle groups and try and get what I call the real thing instead of relying on marijuana or cannabis to try and produce those feelings within myself. Yeah, I will say, uh, you know, I think both of us have uh, become much more handsome since freshman year. You know, in that song, Can the Dog Dig Dude, it was talking about, you know, a pampered pup to salty sea dog. I couldn't help but hear a little bit of a, a prophecy of my own evolution from this pampered kid coming out of Marin County to now being a, a rugged sailor on San Francisco Bay. The other big theme of this podcast, besides marijuana addiction, is how the story that you and I both have with respect to our journey with marijuana is kind of mirrored in the story of California more broadly. You've got big dreams and you've got pipe dreams, some of them, some of them valid, some of them less so. And then a lot of these dreams kind of end up turning into ashes when the people behind them realize that they don't quite have the, the fortitude to see them through to completion. One of the things I'm exploring is how can we figure out which of our dreams are, are worth pursuing? Which ones are we better off letting them turn to ashes, letting them sort of disintegrate so that we can focus on our bigger mission? It seems like you found a real calling with resistance stretching, bringing this message that contradicts a lot of Western medicine, maybe supplants it, maybe enhances it. What are your dreams for the future around stretching how do you fit into this ecosystem growing up i'd always read self-improvement books and a lot of them were how to be better socially when i was a kid i always in some ways saw people succeeding much more than i was socially with girlfriends friends and it really wasn't until i started developing my body but developing my body in specific ways that i feel like it really made progress on that I think it's really a message to anybody that if you have a specific problem, well, there's an association to that problem. And so, Charlie, you were telling me, I'd really like those feelings of ambition without drinking coffee. Well, we could train that large intestine muscle group associated with ambition and coffee, and you could see if that would be successful for you where you'd feel like you want to complete projects and have that type of energy without needing that. So I think it really is a roadmap for people to develop. And I don't think you can really change yourself without changing what's happening on the inside, without upgrading your muscle groups. Because if I were to tell you well, you should just try being ambitious without the coffee. Well, you would do what you would already know how to do, and you'd be actually physically limited without having the physical foundation. I'm trying both in myself and other people that I train and work with is like give them the physical foundation to have the physical health and psychological qualities that they've always wanted because when that upgrades, then they get to attract the person I want to be with, have the life and the job I want. All of those things, 
I know are limited by myself and what's happening on the inside. So as I'm getting helped, I also want to help other people um, realize those things and get what they want. What do you think ails California as a whole beyond just chronic endocannabinoid deficiency from smoking too much marijuana? There's certain California flakiness. I lived in Boston for a few years and they have their own set of problems, but I think there's a East Coast ambition and drive that's not necessarily found in California where California people may actually may not want to work that much. California has its great qualities. I think California people are maybe more loving than people on the East Coast, but I think there's not so much the the hardworking spirit in California that you may necessarily find in other places. No, I think you're right. And, and whether that resulted from something in the, the, the air, the, you know, the, the chill weather, I think that go-getters were attracted to California and there was a, an energy that we see crop up from time to time and things like these massive environmental restructuring, geoengineering type projects that have characterized a lot of our history. They basically rerouted the Colorado River to irrigate the desert in Southern California to, to be able to grow oranges in the wintertime. What a feat. And then you have things, even the protest movements of the 60s, even if I might not agree with all of the aims of those movements, there was still an energy, and I call it grizzly bear energy. We hunted the grizzly bears in California to extinction, but it's still on the flag and it's still an emblem of what I think we can be if we get back to our nature and get back to nature, both the outdoors and, and some of these uh, alternative health modalities. I do think that marijuana is antithetical towards what California needs because I found for myself and what I see in other people that there's no easier way to be in a life situation that you don't want to be with, whether that's a job you don't want to be in or a relationship you don't want to be in is by getting high to kind of dampen what actually you want to be doing. For example, I was in Boston last year and there's a big marijuana festival in the park. I actually bumped into it randomly. I was totally surprised because people were just selling weed in the park. There were stands, there was music. I looked around at all the people and people could barely make eye contact with each other. People's skin didn't look good. Their health didn't look good. These were not the best looking people. If you're stuck smoking weed, it's putting you on that track of repression, non-health, and you're not going to be able to handle yourself socially and follow your greatest desires and dreams on your wishes. Make California hot again. Yeah, make California hot again. To be fair, I did buy some weed at the park, so I'm not out of the woods yet. I, I still have my problems. I, you mean you're problems. not out of the weeds. I'm not out of the weeds yet, but... What's up with California and yoga? Yoga has been this huge craze. Why are people drawn to yoga? I think people are drawn to yoga because they know it's important to move their body. They know it's important to get into different positions. But what I don't think they know is that you actually have to stretch with resistance and contraction. And I think people are seduced by the position, but they don't realize what it takes to get into the position. And that's kind of the piece that we teach and are trying to add is how to get into the position, not just how to have a huge range of motion and make yourself go in a position that your body can't do. What if people want to learn more about resistance flexibility? They can go to 
thegeniusofflexibility.com. You're going to start your own studio someday? Someday. But right now it is a community of people, including Bob, and we're trying to figure out how to take his message global. How do we get everyone stretching and healthy? And that takes much more than myself. Josiah Royce was a Harvard-trained historian who was born in Grass Valley, California, and he wrote some of the early histories of California and also wrote on theology of loyalty and community. And he thought community was the key to unlocking the truth about any spirituality, you know, the, the, the truth ultimately has to lie in community. And he also thought that California's success globally and its influence on the rest of the country and on the rest of the world actually came from its provincialism, from having a sense of who, who we are as Californians. That's something that people around the world want a part of from afar. If you can present it to them in a way that takes a little piece of the California dream and a little piece of the loving aspect, just from what I've seen of what you do, it's very hands-on. I think the biggest barrier for people in the modern world with resistance stretching is just reestablishing human touch with one another. We recently did a corporate event, 100 people. It was amazing in this post-COVID world that by the end of the event, people were not only not wearing masks, people were touching each other. It's actually quite a healing experience to be assisted in stretching because quite often people aren't touched and the only touch they get is maybe a physical sexual touch. It's much more possible than people realize or maybe even experience with the levels of physical contact and communication that we're currently having. Josh, it's always good to see you and I, I hope we can get together in person soon. Thanks for having me. That was really fun and see you soon, Charlie. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If so, be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Dreams and Ashes, Confessions of a Recovering Pothead. My name is Charlie and I'm a marijuana addict. See you on the road. Can the dog dig, dude? Or did the damn dog die when he tried to elude the simplest lie? And I heard he hid when they hounded him. He was only a kid, but they tore him limb to limb. What do you know about the dog, dude? I'm getting sick, bro, of your attitude. Where was the wolf, the wag's wild wife, when he licked himself before? They took his life. Pet pup to salt sea dog. He finally grows up, but his mind it turns to fog. This hound hits the hay. A 21 gun, a real dog's day. This August at 10 to 1. And what do you know about the dog, dude? I'm getting sick. Grow up. Yo, attitude. And where was the wo- wow.
Wax wild, wild. Oh, and it licked himself. For four 